This week, we spoke to our classmate, Chris Eisbach. You might remember Chris as a star of the science department, a member of the football team, and a Lincoln-Douglas debater. But what you might not know is that he is also a builder, a beer brewer, a chef, a designer, a technologist, and a humanist. He is a hybrid thinker and a true embodiment of what you might call a lifelong learner. While he is still in his summer job from graduate school, he has managed to pursue novel experiences both in his work and his personal life. This conversation was so much fun because we couldn't help but get sucked into Chris's energy and enthusiasm for everything he does. Chris met his wife in graduate school and moved to Connecticut for her career. How refreshing. They have raised two kids and are getting ready to be empty nesters, but have no fear. Chris has a million ideas and plans for the future. Let's be sure to ask Chris to bring us some homebrew when he comes to the reunion next October. We know you will love this conversation with Chris. Listen and enjoy. You've been traveling. I have. I went to Nantucket last weekend and it was really interesting. The gathering that I went to is called the Nantucket Project and it is about fostering human connection. Huh. And it has different themes every year. And this year's theme was pluralism, which is the focus okay. of my work right now. So uh, it was fantastic. Opening night was Michelle Obama and Jennifer Lawrence and Ken Burns. And on the other side of the spectrum, we heard from Laura Ingram. <laughs> and uh, I mean, some practitioners, some academics, Arthur Brooks. Um, oh, he's so great. Brad Raffensperger was there. The Secretary oh, cool. of State of Georgia. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Anyway, it was wonderful had a great time, gave me a lot to think about. And one thing that was really cool about it was how much they use storytelling to inspire people and also to show them what pluralism looks like. And there's there were short films, um, there was music, there was even some movement that they invited us to do, which was super awkward next to my boss. I'm like, this is odd, but okay, I guess we're going for it. Um, oh, we're doing so much like, that is so not a pluralistic mindset in this country. No, there really is not. And I just got off a, a four-hour Zoom retreat with um, this organization that we're a part of, and um with everything happening in Israel right now, um, it's just really highlights, emphasizes the need for countering dehumanization and how hard it is to build peace, but how important it is. So it's been quite a, quite a week. What have you been up to? Uh, working and it's my brother's birthday today. Well, actually it was last week, but we're having a birthday party for him today and he's 40. No. Hooray. No way. 
I know. What a baby. Oh my gosh. Um, so everyone's coming over here. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much what I've been doing. Just living life. I wish I could say I was doing something really exciting, but I did think about you and about kind of pluralism because, uh, and this was a very, this is a very controversial topic, but, um, I listened this weekend to an interesting podcast, which you may know because they talk a lot about pluralism in the podcast, especially towards the end, which is the witch trials of JK Rowling. And I don't know if you've oh, listened to it. I haven't yet. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's, it's really interesting. And they talk a lot about the need for better discourse mm -hmm. around controversial topics. Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I think, I think you'd find it interesting and I think you'd find it probably, uh, you know, illuminating in some ways. And I like that it, it's pretty open at the end. It doesn't really, it does have a point of view, I think, but mm -hmm. it's the point of view is really to have conversation. <laughs> yeah. So I did listen to that and it was very interesting. Well, the wonderful thing about long form journalism is that the writer or the creator can complexify the issue, right? I mean, most of our problems come down to oversimplifying, needing things to be binary, and none of us are that simple and no solution is that simple. Um, so yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, listen to it. I'd be curious. We can discuss it later. <laughs> I, I listened to the whole thing in one day. Really? Oh my, <laughs> it was oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, but hey, we have an awesome guest today. Yes, Chris Eisbach. So here's a really random, a random thought about or memory about Chris Eisbach is that his last name is the same distance from the beginning of the alphabet as my last name is from the end of the alphabet. Because every time we had to line up in two columns, like graduation, he was the person directly across from me in the column. <laughs> that is random. And it's the kind of thing that could potentially have been life changing for you. <laughs> like if it had gone in a certain way, you know, it's like by coincidence, we have been, you know, sitting next to each other for years because we've had to be lined up in this. <laughs> It's your sliding doors moment. That reminds me of Susan Stokum's comment about how um, maybe the reason she and I had all of our classes together freshman year was that her name was next to mine in the in the class list. Who knows? <laughs> and then she asked so me, funny. "What about what about David Stein and Shane Straw? Were they there too?" <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Well, as I recall, I mean, Chris was good friends with, I'm trying to think who he was really good friends with. In Hank Almy. Yep. David? David Eagleman. Maybe. Yeah, that could be right. He played football, I remember. He played football. Um, um, and I think of him as a science kind of guy, but yeah, I don't know really. if that's correct or not. Yeah. And maybe I'm thinking about him being friends with David because he went to Rice. Did he go to Rice also? We're going to find out. We're going to find <laughs> out. Hey. Hi, Chris. One. <laughs> doing great. How are you doing? How are you doing? I am pretty darn good. 
Yeah, where are you coming to us from? It looks like your home. Yes, this is my office. Uh, I've, nice. I've been working from home for for over 15 years. So this is basically get up in the morning, come down here, stay here until it's dark, and then go back upstairs. So. <laughs> They've sent you to the basement to do your work. And... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, it looks like you've got a lot of bottles behind you. I have lots of different things behind me of of various sorts, art and things. But yeah, there are a bunch of bottles behind me, partially because <laughs> uh, it's part of um, I'm, I'm part of a brewery, and so it's a bunch of different things for uh, beer. I also started a, a, a homebrew club, so we've done a lot of beer tasting, beer Ooh. type of thing for several years now. So very well, good. Cool. Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to find out all about these things. So are you ready? I am so ready. (laughs) Great. Well, Chris, it's so awesome to have you on Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion, um, our podcast about our amazing class. And if you have listened to any of the episodes to date, you probably know that we always start with the same question, which is, what have you been doing for the last 35 years? Oh, you know, little this, little that. Um, I've actually had a strangely um, straight path to where I'm at. I've heard lots of the different paths and lots of people have done eclectic things and change shifts and that kind of stuff. Junior in high school, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I knew what grad program I wanted to get into. And I I knew that I wanted to go to work for a um, in research and development of Fortune 500 company and did all of those things. Um, so my plan for, from the only thing I haven't done for my plan from a junior in high school was start my own company. Um, and I actually chose not to go down that path because as I got older and I had a, got a, uh, a wife and started building a family, it became clear that to do that well, you have to kind of marry your job. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was pretty fortunate that I could spend a lot of time working from home so I could actually go to the bus stop to pick the kids up after school and come back and, you know, take care of them, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, later I can go back to work a little bit more. So, you know, my job was flexible in that way and that kind of stuff. So um, it was pretty cool. But I mean, to start off, I, um, I really wanted to become a designer. Um, and I found out about this cool program at Stanford called the joint program for product design. And that was really the mechanical engineering and art uh, program. And so for undergrad, I went to Rice and majored in mechanical engineering art. So I got a double degree from that with this, with that grad program in mind. That's why I picked that. Um, Went to, went to Rice with, with Hank Almy and David Eagleman. I was, this is hilarious, Chris, because before you came on, we said, where did he go to school? And Carla said, I think Rice. And And we said, and who were his good friends? And we said, I think Hank and David. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. We're, so, we're we just kept, so far. Kept it going. So, yep. And, and like, um, um, I've actually stayed reasonably close to some of my friends, like um, Hank and Kyle Lee. Um, Kyle ended yeah. up going to Stanford into the start of the program that I wanted to get into. Um, then he changed, shift, shifted gears and, and, and changed, hit, found his own path through that whole thing. But yeah, um, so I went all through there. I managed to get into grad school. I only played, only applied to one place um, and got in. My parents were um, 
nonplussed when I chose to do that. <laughs> but uh, I actually did it on purpose because I knew that that program required a year of life, ex life experience. Mm -hmm. So I suspected that they would say, no, you can't get in, but apply next year. But they actually let me in um, and say, but you have to take a year of life experience. So we'll see you in a year. Oh, but I figured, awesome. I figured if they were going to reject me because I didn't have that, I'd then apply to other grad schools then. But why would I apply to other grad schools with the idea that they have a reasonable chance of rejecting me um, because I don't have that year of life experience? So I figured um, that's what my plan was. So I actually stayed can in Houston. Quick, can I ask you a quick question about sure. that? Um, when you said you knew you wanted to be a designer, you were clear that you wanted to design products? Duff. So when I was a little kid, I always wanted to create new things. I've always liked how things worked. Although I always, I was always the one who took things apart, um, and then you and when could usually put it back together. I, I got pretty good at knowing how far you can take something apart before you can't put it back together anymore. You know, some oh, things it's like so Ooh, cool. don't, don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so I and when I I always thought I wanted to be a mad scientist because you know you create new things and so then I thought I thought you wanted to go into chemistry you know because all the movies had all the bubbling things in the background and all that kind of stuff that's what the mad scientists did um, and later I found out the people who are closest to mad scientists were engineers um, you know they're the people who you're basically applied science you know mm -hmm. you take all the science stuff and you make it real make it something and so I've, I've always liked the intersection of humanity and technology. And so I always wanted to do business, psychology, and engineering. And that's sort of what I do as a designer. So cool. And it's been fun. I mean, I, um, I'm i actually still in my summer job from grad school. Um, so one day I'll have to get a real job. Um, I'm hoping that won't be too soon. But I literally started a summer job in grad school um, at IBM because there was a research development thing there. And I was doing some stuff. We were actually taking computers apart and making wearable computers and head-mounted displays and tablets and all that kind of stuff in the mid-90s. You know, all that yeah. stuff is starting to become real now. We were actually doing and creating back then and kind of thinking about what is the interface going to be on about this and how do we go? And of course, you're using, you know, early, early wireless computing and low-resolution um, monitors and low-power computing. So you can't do a whole lot. But we had all these ideas of like, Augmented display. We actually went and talked with um, uh, United Technology, who they're the people who make like Otis elevators and um, a bunch of other um, like carrier um, air conditioning. And one of the things about installing, I learned this because I, I went and I talked with the the people there, um, is that every one of even though they have you know air conditioning units um, for that do every building is installed differently. You know, they have a different setup and that kind of stuff. So if you're a repair person, you need to know how is this one done? Oh. So we had this concept that you had the little head mounted display, you go up there and it knows where you are and it automatically pulls up the blueprints, all that kind of stuff. And so we oh. were planning on all of that kind of crazy stuff back then. It was kind of cool. That's amazing. So, so. I would love to hear about a couple of the projects that you've worked on and specifically one that worked out really well and one that yeah. totally <laughs> flopped. Well, interestingly, I started out doing hardware kind of design. I've since been doing a lot of software stuff. So um, one of the coolest things I did back in the day that was hardware, I think is more relatable because the software stuff is like, oh, you made a new website that makes it easier. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not all that exciting. Um, but I actually created, I actually physically built 35 
um, tablets that were um, an inch thick. This is back when when the the whole point of you know they were really working on getting the sub one inch laptop. Right. And so, you know that was like the big thing in the mid nineties. So we took we took apart an old laptop and put it in a case. And I designed the case and and actually manufactured it ourselves. We actually had CNC mills and and um, vacuum forming all that kind of stuff. But we were doing it mostly by hand um, because we only had to have thirty five of them. Because the idea is that it would go into a residential area that IBM was creating in um, North Carolina that was supposed to be like the housing place of the future. And so the idea was you have this, it had a wireless display and you can interact with things. It didn't, I mean, I think the thing that made those things real is when the software become actually integrated, we were just tacking things on. So it wasn't very well integrated, just kind of a cool tech demo. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it wasn't until like the iPad was really integrated and you have really, really nice hardware that those things took off and became practical and interesting. So it was more of a, you know, what would happen if we had this, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was nascent kinds of stuff. So luckily I haven't had too many super flops um, because usually before it becomes a crazy flop, it's jettisoned, you know, we're not going to go that route. You know, um, we used to have, you know, like 15 projects going at one time and, you know, some just kind of get left behind, you know, kind of step away from the project, you know, so it doesn't get to the point we never released it. And, my my so I've been at IBM for 27 years, and um, for a large majority of that time, my main client was IBM. So I started out in the business services GBS, um, and but our client was always IBM. So we were doing things like the internal website and all the tools that you use, and the you know the sales tools the salespeople do, all that kind of stuff. So um, you know, that's kind of boring stuff, but the, but the processes were pretty cool. You know, it was all about design thinking and getting people in the room and get building consensus. And, you know, I always thought of myself as being kind of the universal translator between the business people and the tech people and, and then the users and trying to, so that they kind of understand each other, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's fun. That's so cool. So wait, we didn't ask you this, but you live where? I'm in Connecticut. Um, okay. So I live. Headquarters. Headquarters is just north of New York City. Um, okay. Um, we have all kinds of places all over the place, especially in the East Coast. Um, mm-hmm. But I moved out here in 2001, um, and because you know the the typical story, um, I'm in grad school. I meet my wife. Um, she graduates. I I graduate earlier because I only got a lowly master's degree. She got a PhD. Um, <laughs> And uh, um, so she gets a job all the way across the country. And, you know, like all husbands have to do, they just follow their wives around the country as they move <laughs> around from place to place and not even thinking about our life. You know, us husbands just have to suck it up and go with the flow. So that's well, how we I end like about that. here. I like that. Absolutely. I like that story. You've, you've, so. learned, you've learned your place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, the reason I think it's funny is just given what you do and where you got your degree, it's hard. I mean, I live in Los Gatos, so I mean, it, yeah. I, my everywhere I go is a Stanford product design graduate. The guy who lives across the street from me, like, you know, basically invented or has the patent on the wireless, you know, router yeah. from that's, Cisco. That's the place to be. It was pretty exciting. Everywhere, everywhere I was there me. from... 
um what 95 to 2001 so that was you know all that build up just before the big bubble bursts and all that kind of stuff the first time so it was pretty yeah. pretty cool pretty yeah. pretty neat stuff going on there it's exciting awesome. um i don't know if i would still even have a house if i was living out there it's impossible to <laughs> you know it's it's the the housing prices were outrageous um yeah. moved to connecticut where they're not cheap, but they're not that kind of price and was able to buy a house in, you know, nine months after we moved here. So that is cool. So your, your wife had a job out there. Yeah. She's a professor of psychology. So she got a job at a small local um, college. Um, it's funny because most of the people who do what I do actually have degrees in psychology. Um, they were all, and in the team. So I went through an interesting route at IBM. I started out in research and then I went off to a small startup company that IBM just bought called Whistle Communications. We're all about building a little box for um, small companies that were getting like a DSL line and helping it share. It like had a web server built into it and allowed um, file sharing, all that kind of stuff. So, you you know, companies too small to have a sysadmin um, because at the time you pretty much needed one to run the, you know, get the server to work. It's a server in a box. And so it was really all more about how do you make this work for people who don't necessarily know um, what these technologies even are? How do you make sure it's secure? How do you make it easy um, so they can do all the things they need to do? Um, and then um, then all everything crashed in the, you know, in 2000 or whatever it was. And uh, so that IBM kind of said, yeah, we're getting out of the small business thing and concentrating on our big company stuff. And then I went and worked. Um, if anyone knows what a mainframe is, you know, it's the whole giant computers with the green screen. And then IBM had a database called DB2, which is also inscrutable thing that no actual human wants to interact with. You know, it's all the, all the uh, um, people with, uh, with chips in their head, you know, the developer people who really think that way. And I was theoretically designer for DB2 for OS 390, which is the mainframe which in my mind still is an oxymoron that is, is there design is there usability for that? Right. <laughs> um, so then, then, um, you know, when, when, when that small business went under what, one of the things that IBM does is they, they basically say, Hey, you're basically laid off. Um, you got 30 days to find a new job within IBM. Um, you got, you know, so it's, you got 30 days, you're being paid. Your job now is to find a new job. Now, when that happens these days, it's usually kind of a system-wide thing. So we were very localized. So there was lots of other jobs. The, the problem that happens today is a lot of times when they do those kind of layoffs, they still say, hey, go find another job. But most other people are um, have a hiring freeze, which means there are no more jobs to find. But at that time, that wasn't what was going on. So there were jobs to be had. So all the designers on the team were able to find places. That's how I found the um, the the db2 thing but i also was given an opportunity to work out in in connecticut of all places and i turned them down um mm -hmm. because i knew that my wife was not graduating yet and i can't move across country yet so um she had nine months or something like that before she graduated and happened to get a job in connecticut and i there was a design conference and i was at it and met up with the people who had interviewed me and i was like hey um you by chance still need a person? And they said, sure. And so I managed to just kind of move right into that position. And I've been with that group ever since. That is so cool. Yeah. 
It's interesting to me how many of our classmates have very long stints in one company. I just listened to uh, Laurel's interview with, yeah. uh, she was at like 23 years, something like that. So, yeah. and, and frankly, part of the reason I stayed when we were going to move, when we were going to move, I was like, Oh, this is my opportunity. I'm going to go to a new place. Um, during that time, my mom got sick. Um, so this is 2001, 2001 was not a good year. Um, you know, we had nine 11 and that was like the culmination of the bad year. Um, because I, I got a phone call that my mom was sick. Um, she had had cancer. She thought she had beat it. Um, I flew down on a Monday or something like that. And I just called my manager. My mom's sick. I'm not coming in. I don't know when I'll be back. Um, I was out for five weeks, um, as my mom died and, um, it was a nice time to be able to be there for her and all that kind of stuff. That's really important. But IBM supported me completely during that time. I actually got a raise because I realized that I um, I wasn't really getting paid enough for that position. I only I took one week of vacation and they paid me for the rest of it. I didn't even have to call it vacation. They just said, "Do what you need to do." It was only at the end because you know when I went down there, it was like your mom's got a week to live, and it was five weeks, which is nice. It was five weeks, but it's one of those things you don't know. Um, right. it didn't look like she was going to recover. Uh, but it also, it, it could take a long time. So they started the conversation about um, maybe you have to take a leave and that kind of stuff. She ended up dying before we got that paperwork done. But they're like, no, don't worry about it. Just come back and you got to play. So um, that really made me feel like, you know, this is a place that cares about people. And so one of the reasons to stay with it, you know, um, I, I don't know if I'm feeling that way exactly today. <laughs> Lots of things have changed. We had a really interesting ascension of design. You know, the iPhone came out and everyone was all about design. It was selling all these things and design thinking was a thing. And we, we were going up. Um, our CEO at the time, Ginny Rometty, hired a person, the first GM of design in the world. So he was a general manager and started a whole design program. My team, we were always considered, um, we were always tacked on to developers. We were, we were like architects and this kind of stuff. So they didn't really have a place for you. It wasn't really, they kind of called you something that wasn't what we really did. Now there was a whole career about design and a whole design path and all that kind of stuff and a way to become an executive and way to, to actually have leadership roles and all that kind of stuff. So suddenly we had a place at IBM and it, it became great. And then uh, one of the people I worked with became a um, an executive and I started working for a person who became CIO. And then we kind of kept on being upgraded and upgraded and upgraded as that path went. And we actually started really kind of helping the, you know, the CIO is the chief information officer. They're the people that make everything work. They're the people that make sure that what is, what's the service, what, what servers do we use? What, what was your email platform? What's your, um, you know, what, how are we doing all the web pages, all that kind of stuff, you know, just all the tools that you use as a employee, mm-hmm. you know, do we use Slack or do you use teams you that the CIO decides all those things. And yeah. so the neat thing is that we had the ear of the CIO at the time and could really kind of help dictate those things from the point of view of the end user, not just what's financially expedient for the company, but what will make the people happiest or most productive and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And it mm-hmm. really was nice to have, have a position there where we could actually influence things and make things better. And people actually recognize that um, it wasn't just penny pinching. We were making changes for the better. So that was kind of cool. 
That is cool. I'm so excited. I just learned that I'm also the CIO of my organization as there you well go. as there you go. CEO. <laughs> and, and COO too. <laughs> I'm the CFO also, but See, there you go. There you go. Chris, you, know, you said C-C-O. you've been working from home for 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we started, I mean, what I do it didn't make a whole lot of sense to, I mean, we used to have offices and we have a couple of people in the offices and they started doing the whole open office thing. Didn't really, doesn't really make sense. Even now they want us to go back into the office. No one I work with is in that office. I work with people in, in China in India, in, um, in Europe, in California. Um, I'm always on calls. Um, always on WebEx is what we use instead of zoom. And you know, it's not, um, Basically, if you go into the office, now you have to find a place to go so you're not disturbing everyone around you when you're on a call. Right. So it's it's so the, kind of interesting. The, work, um, so, the work is collaborative. It's just not collaborative in person. And right. even before COVID, when it seems like there was an explosion of tools to help people collaborate di- over distance, somehow yep. you all did that previously. It was It was largely with phone for a long time. Um, and then we started having these things where we could do screen sharing. So if someone had a screen to share, but no one had the cameras on, no one had, no, you know, it wasn't like this where you can see the people. They would just, you're on a phone call, then you screen share if they want to show you something. And then we started playing with this thing called Zoom and we started doing that. And then IBM had a big relationship with Cisco. So we started using WebEx and, you know, all these tools just got better and better. So. Yeah, it's so interesting because I have worked from home basically for 15 years about as well. I mean, I was working in schools and then I founded an organization and I, I have always done all my work remotely and long before COVID was using, you know, Zoom and lots of platforms like Mural and things like that. And I feel like coming, coming through COVID, um, I, I want to go back sometimes to the phone yeah. <laughs> now, just because I, uh, I spent, you know, got so intense during COVID where everything was looking at a, at a, another person through a screen. Right. And now there's parts of me that are like, Oh, I just want to get on the phone with that person. Now. <laughs> yeah. It was being on the phone but it, but was nice. I, could, I, I would, I would have, uh, I had the phone on my belt and little headset and I would, I could do yard work while I was on the phone yeah. call because yeah. I'm just listening. I, I, you know, if I'm participating, then I need to be, you know, sitting there and, and yeah. doing that. But if yeah. I'm, if I'm just kind of listening in, I can dig in the garden and listen in just as well as I can sit silently in a room and listen in. So, um, totally. that was pretty cool. Totally. There are advantages. Now, now people know because you know if you're if you have the camera out there and you're digging in the ground, why are you doing? <laughs> so I'm curious because you've really gone through the, the the technological revolution that we've all been going through, but you've yeah. been kind of right in the mix of all of it as a designer. And we've seen, you know, the internet startups, we've seen things move to the cloud, we've seen um, all sorts of technologies. And now we're at the precipice of just another big technological. And I'm actually doing a lot of that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask you to tell us a little bit about sort of the, the landscape of artificial intelligence and what your sort of involvement is and like, what are you thinking about? So- everything. I've been, I've been thinking a lot for the last three or four years about what does it mean as a designer to incorporate AI into a tool? Um, what does an AI interface looks like? And, and it came across as if you're not going to do a chat, which 
at the time was pretty terrible. Most chatbots are horrible. Um, you go there and it doesn't know what you're talking about and it just tells you the same thing over and over again. Right. And you know, people think, oh, that's AI. But the reality is most of those things were very human created. The only AI part of it was trying to decipher what you intended to find from what you wrote. And then it has these eight things to give you and it figures out which one it should give you, which means half the time is not what you were really looking for. So that's one of the cool things that the new LLMs do is that they, add, they might make something up, but at least it feels conversational. And there's a bunch of stuff to, coming down to try to make that less so. But thinking about, okay, if we're going to start doing these things, what processes should we have for creating tools that have AI involved in it? What kind of is, And that always means data. Data is critical no matter what um, for those kinds of things. So how do we build a relationship with our clients so that there, we're collecting their data, but they don't feel like they're being watched or observed. You know, they feel like they're giving that data freely and that they know what benefit they're getting for it. So, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, we have concepts like explainability. If the AI does something, you want to know why, what information did it pull from it? Where did it come from? That's one of the things that ChatGPT hasn't done all that well, but starting to, it's starting to put things where you can click on something and find out where did you get that? You know, why did that come from? You know, so they're trying to build those things into the, um, we're trying to do, I'm actually working on a project we call Chiron. <clears throat> One of the things we're concerned about is that as people become more dependent on AI types of things, you're going to become de-skilled. You're going to stop being good at your own stuff. You go, oh yeah, just click, 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 fine. Um, yeah. Take whatever it is. We call that over-reliance. We want to try to prevent that. So we started doing some things and uh, the toy example we gave is like Google Maps. You go to a place with Google Maps um, and you might drive around in a city for a long time and not know anything where anything is because Google Maps right. telling you left, right, left, right. Totally. You're not building that map of what is the city where um, yeah. it's in. You can even have that happen if you live there for a while, you know, take, yeah. you know, and so what can we do to reduce that reliance? So have it still be helpful, but make it so you don't become dependent on it. Yeah. That's so interesting because I, my husband and I talk a little bit about there are moments where we end up in parts of San Jose and we're like, where are we and how did we get here? Right. And it's because we never have pulled out just a, an old fashioned map of our city. We yep. just go everywhere via Google map. When and, I was there, um, I had the key map. Do you guys still have key maps? Right. That was, that was in the day of key maps. I remember oh, I using know. maps. It's basically a book um, of maps. And then right. you get, you yeah, flip yeah. it over to the thing and they flip it to the next one. So yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I called well, that the maps I'm... go. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been thinking about it as, you know, more and more of my platforms do include some level of artificial intelligence where my sentences are being finished for me. Right. You know, I'm, I'm starting to think about like, what is this eventually going to do to my writing process? Yeah. And um, I think a little bit about, um, you know, I, I can kind of like, I use a lot of AI right now for, um, for finding image, for creating images for mm -hmm. things. And it's amazing what I put in and what, what image pops out. And right. sometimes yeah. I think, Oh my gosh, is this stifling my creativity? Is this, adding to it, mm -hmm. it gets very, uh, I, I question those, how that's going to wire my brain. <laughs> I, I think it's a good, it's a good thing to be concerned about because it can, yeah. um, 
you go back to all kinds of different technological revolutions and people have always been concerned about this thing. You know, this printing press thing is going to rot kids' minds, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's kind of true. Um, people stop being, stop having huge catalogs of things that they remember because it's written down. And mm-hmm. But yeah. you also have access to much larger catalog of information than you ever did before. Um, take Take like, so we were talking about things like getting technology has made it so we don't need to remember phone numbers anymore. Um, I mean, there's, I used to know all kinds of phone numbers. I still remember the phone number from when I was a kid. Um, and I don't know my neighbor's phone number, even though I call them regularly now, you know, because I don't need, and then you think about, but does that matter? Because it doesn't matter. The number's arbitrary. I, what I want to do is connect to a person. And so I'm, I can know how to connect to the person. That's what matters. And whether it's email or texting or that kind of stuff is irrelevant. And so the fact that I don't, um, the fact that I don't have uh, a good memory of phone numbers may be irrelevant because that was a technological artifact of the old way of doing things. So it's not like we're missing out anymore, but it feels like it is like, oh, we're not doing that thing anymore. We used to do it all the time. So, right, and I'm assuming that the things that we no longer do, like memorize phone numbers, which took up a certain kind of muscle memory in our brain, we're using in some other way. Right. So So the question becomes, what things are okay that we're not going to do anymore? And what things are we going to really lose? Um, And so here's an example that we're doing at work. We have have this concept, um, you know, we do a lot of... um, I forgot what the what the application is called, but you guys will never use it, don't, so it doesn't matter. Um, there, but there's a tool that helps people like inspecting bridges. So inspecting bridges, you got to go out and you have to take someone looking at the thing, and and sometimes it used to be you have to get like scaffolding, go out to the edges because it's you know you're above some big crevice. You know you don't, you're gonna almost kill yourself, but you have to inspect that bridge because you don't want cracks and have it fall apart. Then they started getting drones that could go and fly around there, so they didn't have to risk their life to do that, but but now they have all this footage and they have to go through. Well, now they have um, AI systems that can kind of identify certain elements that are telltale signs of wear or, uh-huh. or you know, water damage or, you know, stress or whatever. But the question then becomes, what happens when the, when the expert kind of, th- there's actually precedent for this, where the, the current experts can look in there, they can understand and go, oh, yeah, 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 that all looks good. But the up and coming people who haven't had 20 years of actually going out to a bridge and looking at it, they kind of look at a thing. Yeah, that looks right to me. So how do you make them go from a novice person who studied it in a book? to someone who could actually identify things because the AI is not going to be perfect and it's not going to, it might have false positives, might have false negatives. How do we mm-hmm. give that user a path towards um, expertise um, mm-hmm. while having the AI support them and help them? And so that's going to be a tricky thing to do. Um, and then, you know, they also have things like people like my wife who assigns papers for students to write and then they go and have ChatGPT write it for them. And people are like, well, how am I going to be able to tell? Um, and that kind of thing, you know, what's going to happen with that? And I have a kind of a theory about that. I kind of feel like right now it's novel. So it feels like it's magical and this mystical thing. And look how well it writes. But if, you, if you're if you a decent writer, you actually look at it and go, it writes better than average, but it doesn't write great. Um, it's a little stilted. Um, it's not very, um, doesn't have much soul in it, all this kind of stuff. Go back to the the original movies where people go into a dark room and there was a big thing and there's a tunnel and a train comes out of the thing. They all go, ah! 
because this black and white grainy train kind of this little hole, we, we could take go, what the heck is that? But they were frightened. They thought something was going to come and hit them because they didn't have the experience of you can have this picture on the wall that with this thing coming at you and it's just a picture that wasn't, that was a new thing. And so it was scary. It didn't take that long to get re- used to it. You know, now we see movies that are so realistic, but it still doesn't feel, you know, you know, oh, that's just a movie. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it's going to kind of become like that. We're going to go and say, okay, we have X number of things that AI generates. We have a whole lot more content in there, but the excellent content is not that content. The excellent content yeah. is stuff that the humans are doing that they're actually, maybe they have an AI to support that, to, to like do some ideation or to do simple editing or to do layout, but then they do the interesting parts. And that's what I'm hoping yeah. is going to happen is that, yeah. you know, it's going to unleash more creativity in humans that they can start doing interesting things. More people can do art. You know, you said you, you call things up to put little bits and, but now you're kind of thinking about it. you're what, what should I talk about? To, you know, and is this a picture I want in this, you know, you can start getting, you know, you know, tailoring that to your, to what, how is it going to support what you're doing? It's going to, it's going to reduce some of the jobs that some of those people had, but frankly, you were probably going to use clip art in the past. And that also was replacing those jobs. Stock so, images or whatever. Yeah. The question is how much of it is going to take away real jobs? How much is going to enhance jobs and, and allow for new ones? And it's too early for us to really know, but I have confidence that it's going to just unleash a whole bunch of stuff that we don't even know yet, but it's probably going to take a couple of years and there may, there's going to be casualties along the way. And how do we make that as non-painful as possible? But I think in the, in the long run, we're probably just going to have more skills. We're going to, more people are going to be able to do more creative things more easily. So that'd be cool. I so. love the hopeful vision for the, for, for AI, because there's a lot of fear mongering around. I have it. a bad habit of being uh, optimistic on most things. So I'm part of a club called urgent optimists. Yeah. It's a futurist club that um, they run out of the Institute for the future. Oh yeah. And we do a lot of, yeah, we do a lot of like scenario work in that club yeah. and it's really fun. And part of the goal is to think about the, the signals and how to design for a preferred future, right? Instead yep. of always the dystopian. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my so theory crazy. behind that is um, we don't want the dystopians running the stuff, but you need you need both the hopeless optimists and the dystopian people in the world to remind us yeah. of the, you know, of the two different sides. So then you can kind of pick the path in the middle because almost always, you know, my theory about all that stuff is no one's hundred percent right. And no one's hundred percent wrong. Everyone's right about something. So you should listen to them enough to determine how, what parts of that is right. You know, if someone's freaking out about something, there's probably a reason they're freaking out about it. You might not care, but there was a reason, you know, it's not like, it's not just hallucination most of the time. Um, they may be blowing out of proportion, but you know, being aware of it is good. And then, you know, take action appropriately. So. Absolutely. Um, that reminds me of all this work I'm doing about trying to find a middle path and complexify things instead of trying to say you're right, I'm wrong or right. I'm right. Well, you're rarely, wrong, like, you know, like I said before, um, no one's hundred percent right. And no one's even me, you know, I know, you know, I, I know that I'm wrong, but my job you know, it's always interesting when someone's like, well, I want to be right. So I need to take my point. This was my point of view before. It's like, I want to be right. And the way you get right is change your mind to the more right 
choice. You know, you don't need to dig in. Well, I thought this before, so I have to keep thinking. It. It's like, no, I learned something new. So now I'm nuanced or, oh, wow, I was wrong. I got that wrong. So now I think a different thing. You know, I like the idea of I have strong opinions loosely held. You know, as soon as you yeah. find out the new fact, well, I guess that was wrong. Now, now I believe this ruling really strongly until, until that's disproven. So. You're, it's fun to hear you so passionate about your work. And I also know because you started by telling us about bottles behind your, your, uh, your desk yeah. that you have other interests. outside. I have of just way work. too many interests. Yes. I would so like to hear what, what else happens outside of the basement. <laughs> there are things. So, so I, I always say, you know, for my job, I push bits so that in my free time, I push atoms. You know, I want to go build stuff. I, I finished this, this room I built in my basement. I finished my basement. I um, did all that kind of stuff. I, I like to get my hands dirty all that kind of stuff. I like to do all the gardening stuff. But um, a long time ago, um, I, you know, my parents were always big uh, venophiles. So, you know, they had a wine cellar and got you know, into wine tasting. We always had a, a culture of tasting at my house. So, um, you know, we taste olive oils and taste this and, you know, compare them. And so I still do that. I actually teach people how to do that and all that kind of stuff Ooh. because I started um, doing beer because one, when you're in college, beer is a lot cheaper than wine. Yeah. Um, not anymore. It's getting, they're catching up, yeah. but, um, but, um, traditionally it was a lot cheaper. And I went to a place, a really great, um, beer bar just North of rice that had like 70 beers on tap in the mid nineties, which meant all, most wow. of them were imported because there weren't that many good beers in the United States. Right next door was a homebrew shop. So you go over there and I started homebrewing. And so I've been homebrewing since 91, um, you know, when I legally could. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but that means I've been doing it for over 30 years. And so when I came yeah. here, I started a homebrew club 12 years ago, which is still going strong. We have people doing it from that homebrew club. Five breweries have been started, including one that wow. I helped start um, about 10 years ago. Regretfully, it didn't survive COVID because we had some bad business decisions and different things. So kind of just recently, I think February, it went under. So, um, but we were almost 10 years old. We were, um, you know, when they changed the laws here in Connecticut, um, when you can self-distribute, it made it so that it was a lot easier to um, start your own brewery because the biggest gateway before was getting into the distributors and that kind of stuff. And they had the, you know, lockdown where it was really hard to do that when you could just put it in the back of your van and take it somewhere or distribute out of your brewery, suddenly it becomes viable. And so we did that starting in 2012 and we actually opened in 2013. So I've been involved with those kinds of things. So I, I do lots of, I, I, I like to, I've always, you know, I always wanted to have done it before. Like, like um, for Christmas, I always bake lots of, I always make candy and cookies and stuff like that and send it off to my, probably do about 40 or 50 pounds of those things and send it off to my relatives. This year I'm going to make chocolate from scratch because I did it once before. I said, you know, I love chocolate. So I bought some cocoa pods and I fermented, and it's always about fermenting. I fermented the beans to the thing, then you roast the beans, then I ground them up. And I, um, and then you have to, then you start doing all the different process to actually make chocolate, which is kind of fun. That's so, so cool. I highly recommend bees. Bees? We have bees. My neighbor bees. has bees. He's had problems <laughs> with mites um, for the last two winters. Oh, so yeah. he's worried yeah. about this winter coming in. But yeah, he started doing some bees. You like yeah, bees? We have bees? You got all the honey? I, we do. I love to get my husband in his bee suit. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle Lee has bees in his backyard. <laughs> Last time I was there, he he sent me home with a little thing of, of honey. So Yeah. 
I just we just pulled two gallons of honey two wow. weekends ago. You should make so mead. Really you make I mead make with it. Make mead. Mead is mead. fermented honey. Oh. So that's, what am I gonna do with that? Drink it. You give it to your friend. You drink it. You give it to your friends. Oh. You you. It's a it's a it's a ancient it's an ancient beverage. Okay, I'm gonna look it up now. You're gonna yeah. take it. You're gonna take it to the Ren Fair. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's actually some decent meads these days. With a lot of times, they'll mix it with fruits, that kind of stuff, or you mix it with beer. You can make it sour, all that kind of thing. So yeah. there's lots of different varieties. That's the cool, other cool thing. Okay. You know, people always know about wine. They always talk about, you know, people are kind of socialized to know about styles of wine and types of wine and, ooh, that's a Riesling and that's a Cabernet and all that kind of stuff. And they know the difference between red wine and white wine with beer. It's like, well, there's Bud, right? That's all. It's all one thing. Is that a beer or an ale? That kind of stuff. The reality is there's two kinds of beer. All beers are either a lager or an ale. They're all beer. Um, You know, all beer means is it's made with grains, pretty much. Um, And... Um, there's way more variety of flavors of beer than there are of wine. Um, you, know, you get all these sours, you get these sticky um, dessert stouts and then the IPAs that get all funky flavors and they used to be very, very bitter. Then they became much more um, citrusy. So there's all kinds of fun things you could do with that. So. That's so cool. Very cool. Now, do you involve your children in the beer making? Are they at that age? They're not yet? that interested. Um, I've, I've, <laughs> Tried to see if they want to. My my son's nineteen and he's in college. My daughter's fifteen. She's in high school. Um, they're not particularly interested in what the old man is doing. So they they, they like. It. So you know, I was talking about fermenting. Well, I, I make a lot of bread too. So I make homemade bread. They'll they'll more than happily eat that. I I love cooking. So they love my cooking. My my wife got lucky that uh, um, she has a living chef because I I cook for the. For the not not a Mark DeFoya level chef, but uh, you know, pretty good for a home chef. So that's awesome. That is I so want cool. one of those. I mean, my husband does cook, but my my, my wife is like uh, it, the 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 joke is, you know, when I go away, I have to do what the the wife from the fifties does and and pack away all the dinners, so that otherwise the family might starve. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. So I'm thinking about how similar your life is now to the life you envisioned in terms of high school junior I have this planned and I'm gonna do xyz and you've you're living that which is except we're starting the business which I still have time to do once my kids are out of the house then I mean that sounds like you're starting a business business. yep yeah. But I wasn't involved in the so, business as much as I would like to have. And now having been through what caused it to close, um, next time I do that, I'll have a much stronger hands on to know we're not going to go down that path because it leads to disaster. So, yeah. So aside from um, the things that you knew were going to happen, what's something surprising that's happened that was, it was not part of the plan? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a million things aren't part of the plan, but um <laughs> Shockingly, there's not dramatic. I mean, I usually, I'm one to always try the new thing and go build it myself or try to make that thing. Or, you know, I've always wanted, if there's something I like, I want to know, I want to have made it at least once and then realize, oh, it's not worth it. <laughs> Too much effort. Or now I can make it even better. Um, luckily, there haven't been um, 
other than family life types of stuff, there haven't been too many tragedy kinds of things. It's been pretty, I feel remarkably fortunate for how nice things have gone, you know? Um, so I guess that's it. I, I pretty happy, happy with the way things are. I like my kids. <laughs> they seem to be thriving. <laughs> so that's always nice. It's not everyone likes their kids. So, you know, yeah, everyone loves their kids. Not everyone likes their kids. <laughs> no. It's a very different statement. Um, Especially and, uh, on a daily basis. Well, yeah. I mean, there are always going to be moments. I'm sure they don't like me on a daily basis, too. So, you know, we, we, we all always have that. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, for sure, it is nice. Well, it's wonderful that you have that perspective on it. Yeah. So tell That's us fun. about the future. What's next? Oh, what's next? Oh, what's that, next? Is, that is an interesting curious. thought. Um, well, the kids, you know, my son is in college. My daughter is trying to figure out what she's going to do. Um, she's actually interested in design. What was that? Is your son close to you? Yeah, he's in Boston. So it's about two hour drive. Um, he is in computer science, which we kind of always knew what he would do. He's actually computer science and and math. He's, he's going to a college, um, he's going to Northeastern, which is known for their co-op programs that they do all these things hands on this great because you can get a job. And his first re- re- response to that is, but I don't want a job. <laughs> He's, he wants to follow in his mother's footsteps and get a PhD and go into academia. So um, my son's at Northeastern too. Oh, really? Yeah. What, but what he's, in Prague, he's in Prague right now. Okay. Yep. They do a lot of, of, of international stuff there. It's pretty yeah. cool. So he'll be starting on the Boston campus in January. Oh, so, so. he's a freshman. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Was that like, um, and you in and you, I know yeah. they're doing a whole bunch of ones where they yeah. start people off in different countries, which is kind of a yeah. interesting way to start a first year in college, isn't it? Totally. It's like, what's totally. this? So we'll have to get together somehow uh, at a, if there's a parents weekend, we'll miss this year, but yeah, we, maybe that's, we'll it, it's in two days. Like it's, it's yeah. this, this weekend. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we should definitely, if you're, when you're up, yeah, definitely. We should get together. Yeah, That'd be fun. Sure. Uh, but yeah, he's loving it. Um, and my daughter is interested in, um, she's, she's a little bit more like me in the sense that she just starts doing things. So she, a couple of years ago, just decided to, Hey mom, do you have a sewing machine? And then she started sewing clothes, um, for her birthday last summer. Um, so a year and a half ago, she asked for a dress form so she could start doing that kind of stuff. So she's getting into fashion and wanting to do all that kind of stuff. So she, she's the one who is an amazing artist. And, you know, my son's the, the math guy. He, he, he took calculus his soft, sophomore year in high school. Um, and then he, when he finished high school, he almost took his more math than I did after, um, you know, engineering, you have to take a lot of math. So, um, he finished high school with more, with almost as much math as I took throughout Hall College. Oh so. my gosh. And now he's doing more math, you know, and now he's well beyond because, you know, that's just what he loves. His, he's always been a math thinker. My daughter is much more of a spatial, um, art. Um, you know, even when she was like three, she was the kid who, um, when they do their doodles, it stood out. What's this? You know, it didn't look like a three-year-old's drawing. So, we um we, wow. we would go to when they were kids. They both went to the same preschool. And one of the cool things that this preschool does is has all the kids make a self-portrait, and you have third three-year-olds, four-year-olds, and five-year-olds. So five-year-olds pre-K or 
or like a half day kindergarten kind of thing. And you can kind of see the progression. And then they make a t-shirt with all of those self-portraits. So we have a t-shirt from each year and kind of circled the one that my kid did. And that kind of, it's kind of fun, but it's interesting because you can see, you know, the three-year-olds all look similar, but look look distinctly different from four-year-olds and then five-year-olds and that kind of stuff. Um, And, uh, but my daughter, for some reason, she always has a sensibility about that was a little bit beyond what the other kids were. And it kind of stood out. It was kind of interesting. Um, cool. I used to teach that. So when I was in grad school, I actually used to teach drawing and art and creative problem solving to mechanical engineers who are not known for their creativity. They're known for wow. getting the right answer and there is a right answer versus the creative answer and the interesting thing. And, and so it was more about drawing. And when you do that, you discover that most people either keep doing art their whole life or they stop in fourth grade. And so you could tell the first time you ask someone to draw, they draw like a fourth grader, even though they're in college or, you know, they have some sort of art skills and that kind of stuff. And it's just interesting because that's when you start thinking you want to make it photorealistic. You want it, and then you can't. So you just stop, you know, it's the people who realize you don't draw to make a photo, to make a photograph. You draw to express something and to to get an idea across. And that was what the what that class was about. How do you how do you put your thought on paper so other people can see it and understand it? It doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to be understandable. So yeah, I do a lot. I did. A, I've done some training around graphic recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really helpful, right? It's really helpful to be able at the end of a meeting to have an artifact. And it's cool when someone else has done that and you were in the meeting. Oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see all that. Yeah. 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 I've never yeah. been good at that, but I had a colleague that's really good at it. And some of the stuff are, is really fun. It's really. Yeah, I'm definitely like mediocre. I could do it in a meeting I'm running, but people probably wouldn't pay me. To do <laughs> right. I'm right. not going to do it at TED anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but those are fun. I love those kind of notes. Yeah. yeah. Very visual, very tactical. Yeah. Tactile. So. so I don't know if you answered the question. Which Probably not. Is, <laughs> what's the oh, what's the future? What's the future for you? What like, is the future? What's one thing that you're putting on the plan, like you planned for now? What's the thing that you're putting on the plan for ten years from now? Um. So I had two plans for when I retire. Um, one is start making furniture and sell it at um. Just something to keep me busy that makes a little money. I'm hoping I don't need the money, but it's better to make some than not make some. And then, you know, I'll, I make too much stuff that I, otherwise it'll just clutter my house. So got to get rid of it. Or my, my, I don't know if this plan is as useful as it used to be, but I wanted to start a bistro that would be a bar bistro, a, a beer bistro where you pair food with beer. And then the challenge would be bring your friend who doesn't like beer and we'll find one that they like. So you have a whole variety of flavors, a whole different things, because you can have very wine-like beers from from um, um, Belgium or tart beers or, or you know, very sweet things or very, you know, you have all the flavors. Um, and so the idea would be, I just like the idea of teaching people. One of the reasons I started the Homebrew Club is that I, I go in, I, I kind of teach about different styles, about different things and what goes into it. What are the ingredients? How do you make it yours? Um, all that kind of stuff. And I just like that process. Okay. So I want to do, do something where I could okay. teach the world um, about something <laughs> that I love. And then, um, you know, that kind of thing. Nerd, nerd all the way through, I guess is what that means. <laughs> Very cool. So cool. Yeah. Well, shall we do the flashback now? 
Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, be- before we get into the questions, we'd love to hear your reflections about high school. When you think back to those years, what stands out about yourself? How would you describe yourself back then? Um, well, you know, I was one of the lifers. So um, I guess there were 64 of us that started um, in the beginning, the all boys school um, back then. I think of those 64, like 50 of them finished something, probably like 45 or something like that finished, graduated with us. So it was pretty, pretty amazing. Um, It was also interesting um, being in an all boys school when, you know, puberty is happening and you realize that girls go from yucky to nice um, and then they're not there. (laughs) So you you went, you know, you know, when you guys came, you're probably going, what are these weird boys that are opening doors and, and doing all these, you know, having all this polite stuff that you, we had to do at the Academy. So um, (laughs) that's a a very interesting environment, but um, high school wise, I, I was thinking about this, you know, because I've, I've been loving these podcasts. It's been a lot of fun thinking about well with people. It's always fun to hear people's imp- impression of themselves when you know them as the person who you saw. And it's always very different. You know, the, the you know, what, what you, you know, unless you are good friends with them, you kind of see them walking through the halls, you kind of have an impression of them that probably isn't anywhere near. And I always felt like I didn't connect as much with things because I was always gone the summers and Christmas holidays because my parents got divorced when I was five. Um, my mom lived in Iowa and my dad lived in Albuquerque. I, my, the first time I ever flew on an airplane, I was five, I think. And I flew by myself. So that's a very different thing than these days when, you know, my kid's only 21. He can't go down the street by himself. (laughs) It's like, you know, it seems like there are people who are very concerned about those things and they weren't when we were kids. He can go down Um, the street, but only if he has a backup phone charger. That's right. That's right. I got to be able to track them. Um, and so I, but, but that meant I didn't like do summers and have the summer jobs with other people in the high school. I was gone over break and that kind of stuff. So I think there was a lot of that kind of stuff I didn't really do. Um, but I did have, you know, several close friends I still stick around with, but I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I would describe myself in high school. I generally optimistic and happy and that kind of thing. But, uh, um, I, I think I like being at school better than I like being at home a lot of times. So, you know, there's a lot of cool things happening and the Academy is a pretty remarkable place. I think one of the key, one of the things that made me realize that was going to college and college was just more school. Didn't seem dramatically different from high school where a lot of people are like, Oh my God, they're expecting this to do thing. I don't know how to study. I don't know how to do stuff. I was like, this is just like the class. It might be a little easier than some of the classes I took in high school, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was interesting yeah. how, how that really helps. But um, um, I think, I, I mean, even in high school, I was always scattered. Um, I do think, I am glad that I, we grew up in the time we did, because I'm pretty sure I would have been medicated um, when we were in, if I, if I was, um, you know, in high school now, because, you know, my mom always thought I was, crazy. I always had a lot of energy. Um, I think I, I know I have dyslexia and I, they probably would have done something with that. I'm pretty sure that um, there's mild um, ADHD kind of thing because I always, I'm never sitting still, never doing anything, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think it was good that I learned how to 
harness that as opposed to be medicated to harness it. And I think that I think that we probably don't allow people to go through the the work to do that. But I think they didn't. They just kicked you in the butt and say, sit down or do that or whatever back in the day. And you either do or you don't. And I was lucky I did. So I feel like we've heard that so many times recently. And it's it's um, we could almost have like a research study on this class of how many people have said, you know, I I have been diagnosed or I since then or I probably should have been. Well, take a look and, at the number of people who are diagnosed in college now. Right. Right. But they often say I wouldn't have wanted necessarily right. to have been labeled that way at the time because I just worked through it. And I, while it's I, nice I'm, to I'm know now. I'm worried of all the people who are dependent on these things that, you know, we kind of expanded the definition of these things. I definitely believe that there are some people who benefit greatly from some of the medications. I also mm-hmm. think sure. that there are plenty of people on them that could have done just fine without them. It would have just taken a little bit extra work and no one was around to wanting to put in the extra work, whether it was the teachers or the parents or the society in general. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah. I think that's a little too bad. I wish we'd have more of that. I know there's lots of schools that focus on things like that. You know, the, like there's an interesting school in Colorado, I think, that helps kids with ADHD by basically being outside all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, give you that out access and, and then they can kind of can can absorb information and learn that kind of kind of don't force them to sit still in a in a room right. without moving. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah. have to realize that you know, that person needs that kind of thing, you know, so. I was going to say it's you use the word scattered to <laughs> describe yourself. And I feel like that's really not fair to the tremendous amount of focus that you had to pursue the path you took. And at the same time, you're just busting with curiosity. And so of course you're going to try out a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, I, I made the joke that I didn't get a PhD. My wife has the PhD and I have a master's degree. I had lots of opportunities to get PhDs. If I actually had people ask me to come work with them to get a PhD under them. And I'm like the problem with getting a PhD for the way I interact with the world is that it's too focused. I like to know, I like to think I know more than average on a huge number of things. I don't know the most in any of those things, but I know a lot more than most people do. And I, and then I can take pieces and try to put them together. Oh, you know, this is kind of like that. Can we do this here? This is kind of, you know, and it's kind of the creative process. You know, the best part of creativity is knowing all the different options and mixing and matching them and trying to figure out learning from other experiences, learning from, from other people, what other people have done in different ways. And can we think about this that way here? You know, that kind of stuff, which is why it frustrated me with mechanical engineers where, so in, in college, I graduated with a mediocre grade. Um, and I, in des- in the design, our senior design project, I was with three other guys who were all magna cum laude kind of people. And yet they didn't remember Jack about the whole engineering field. And I remembered a lot of this stuff because I, I worked more about remembering and understanding it than about getting the grade. And so, and they were always like, well, we shouldn't do it that way because no one does it that way. So it must not work. I'm going, that's a terrible reason not to do something. It might not work, but don't do it because no one does that way. So it must not work. That's the worst reason to not do something. You know, is there an experiment we can do to tell why it doesn't work? You know, how do we do this differently? 
So anyway, I love that. I want to. I I, I, I use that scatteredness to to uh, do lots of different things. I want to draw a connection to your belief that it's better to be confident than certain. And you don't care about being the expert in one thing. You're really not that attached to being right about something. You'd much rather go and explore and make connections. So, And I I I try to know enough that I can have a conversation with the expert and have an idea what they're saying and then learn something from them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So should we do the flash round? Let's do it. You want to kick us off, Carla? All right. Well, you know the questions by now. So you've had some time to think about these things. Um, So, you know, question number one, who was your high school crush? Uh, um, That would be Joanna Garcia would be my high school crush. Um, It never worked out. She was always dating other people when I wasn't. So I didn't really date in high school, though. So it wasn't not what was in the cards for me. But uh, um, I it, it was a situation I learned well is the friend zone kind of I've frequently in the friend zone when it comes to things like that. <laughs> well, she was very crushable. She was yeah, she really was amazing. She was also <laughs> Hank Almy's uh, um, debate partner. So she was, oh, wow. um, and they went to nationals and did all that kind of stuff, but they did the bad kind of debate. They did policy debate, not the good kind, which was uh, um, Lincoln Douglas. That's what I did. <laughs> which is of course what made it good. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Second question. Munch pudding. Or veal birds. Discuss. I would definitely say munch pudding. It's I've actually made it for my kids before. Um, so, um, but veal birds, I remember not disliking them, um, but I don't, wouldn't like the greatest thing. I, they were definitely distinct. So, um, and, and um, but I would definitely go for the munch pudding. And I like the chocolate munch pudding because I like chocolate. How, how would you describe your signature style or brand? Oh, I <laughs> if you had one, um, like what? This is like what clothes that I wear because I didn't. Oh, yeah. or like, did you have a style, and maybe there was a brand associated with that? I really <laughs> didn't. Um, the closest thing that would be Levi's or something like that. I don't think I, and we weren't even allowed to wear Levi's until later. And you know, I guess in a high in high in high school we could, but in middle school we couldn't. Um, yeah, but we could I didn't wear, really we could have in high school, right? Was that? We could wear jeans in high yeah, school. Yeah, I think we right? could, but in high school, they they, they let that right. up by then. I never, even now, I don't really have a signature look. Um, colored T-shirts is what I wear now, <laughs> and, and or, or standard button-up office wear. You know, old, old old man going to the office kind of stuff. So I don't really have <laughs> I like it. any particular brand. My daughter probably wishes that I did. Um, she would love to dress me. She's definitely the, she's definitely, she was definitely one that when she was three, it was obvious she was going to be a clothes whore. She was always wanting to dress up, all that kind of stuff. And then um, she didn't care for a while, but now she's all in on, on all in. exactly things. Yeah. It's usually eclectic and half the time she makes it herself. So, um, so she would like to dress me, but uh, um, I think I dressed like a middle-aged man. I, it sounds like she would have a good eye. Maybe you should oh, take yeah, it up on this. Oh, yeah, she definitely does. She definitely does. Before you come to our reunion, you should have yeah. – We w- I, I shouldn't say should, but it would be delightful if your daughter would make you something to wear to our reunion. I, I've yeah. asked her to make something like a suit coat or something like that. That would be fun. Actually, um, I've always wanted to take her back. And I, the reunion is usually a week or two before the balloon fiesta. 
but I always wanted to take her to the balloon fiesta because she got interested the year that the American girl was from Albuquerque and had balloons as um, like went to the balloon fiesta as part of her thing. That's right. Josefina. They've only been to Albuquerque once and she was like one because I have no reason. I, my parents still live there, but I haven't spoken to them in 25 years. So I haven't been back to Albuquerque except for to visit Kyle. Um, or, and usually oftentimes go to the reunion. So, um, that kind of thing. The fourth question, what car did you drive in high school and how did it meet its demise? This is a multiple choice answer (laughs) because I had more than one car in high school that met their demise. Um, the first one was a, uh, a Volkswagen rabbit that metastomized on campus when Deborah Cantu went through a stop sign. I was going a little too fast along the other one on campus and T-boned her and totaled my car. I, I think probably did a good number on her car. We both had uh, carpooler kids in the car at the time. So that was not a great incident. No one got hurt. No one got hurt, luckily, but, uh, remember that and i'm surprised it didn't like make the rounds but yeah i think it was freshman sophomore year probably sophomore year um because you know you know the one road that went around um the outside of thing um, to, to the middle school then the other one kind of went through the middle of the middle school there's a place where there was a t i was going around there she went through there and i was going faster than she thought and went through and i guess i stopped her so that wasn't so good um the car after that was a nissan 200 sx um so that was fun. That one also um, had a problem on campus. I was, Eric Burton and I um, were doing donuts in the uh, parking lot and I skidded a little too hard and hit the curb and dented the wheels in. So that had to get fixed. That was fixable. But senior, coming back from a senior party, it got totaled um, because I was driving home and I was on the freeway and someone came on the on-ramp and came across. I was in the middle lane. They came all the way across into my lane, but they were going way slower than me. So I had to turn around them. I spun around and, um, Oh my gosh. It was not good. So those are my cars from high school. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) All right. I, I, uh, probably drove a little too fast in high school. Yeah. Apparently. (laughs) Like the, yeah. Well, yeah, well, I mean, like we the have time heard Chris a couple and I had a race up, uh, up Montgomery. <laughs> well, I mean, we heard at least one other car that uh, met its demise on the academy campus, so yeah. <laughs> for sure. Um, okay, so what song or band would be on the soundtrack of your high school experience? For me, I was definitely into classic rock, um, but and progressive rock, and I liked um, Genesis, like the early Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a song most people probably haven't heard called Duke was probably my favorite of those. And like the Peter Gabriel and early, um, Phil Collins versions of Genesis. That and uh, Led Zeppelin. That's what I w- was listening to in 
high school. I love Genesis. I love Phil Collins. I am Peter Gabriel, but yeah. um, every once in a while, a, a Phil Collins song or Genesis song will come on. I'm like, this was really good. Yeah. This was really, really good. And, and the funny thing is evidently they didn't want to be rock stars. They were songwriters and they couldn't get anyone to play their songs. So they started playing themselves and I guess realized they were pretty good. <laughs> so, Amazing. Go figure. What high school teacher had the greatest influence on you? Um, early days, it was John Sandoval as far as being shop. Um, but in high school, it was definitely Dave Glidden and Tom Buchanan. Um, and so we would hang out in their office Um the the nerd crew me kyle hank dan clifford um dan park and some under under um people in the grade under us and you know we did exciting things like play chess and that kind of stuff up there and talk about nerdy things so (laughs) did you say you had um john sandoval for did you have him for a class for sure i had him for shop um several times throughout um um middle school and uh i still love woodworking as a result of that i and i when i went to college i went out to try to find some of the same kind of really nice woods that we had available and shocked at how expensive they were to try to build i made some a couple of cutting boards from my parents that were probably 50 dollars cutting boards <laughs> when, you, when you actually count up the, the exotic woods that were in them mm-hmm. so Matter of fact, I still have something over here from that I made my mom back in the day that is in that eclectic mess over there. Oh, so. That's so cool. Okay, you may have already answered this question. Maybe it was the, the offices of Mr. Glidden and Mr. Buchanan, but what was your favorite hangout spot, either on or off? So on um, campus yeah. was that. We would definitely hang out there a lot. Um, you know, I went to different through the different phases at different times, but that was probably the place that we'd always migrate back to. And then not on campus is probably Eric Burton's house. Yeah. You know, we would go there and hang out. It was usually me, Kyle, Eric, and Dan uh, Clifford. And then we would go driving. Eric would be in his uh, his charger that he rebuilt. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time helping him rebuild some of those things, but he did a, a lot of that kind of stuff. And uh, we'd drive around and get into trouble, but hang out his because his mom was usually gone. So it wasn't a... You know, it was the place that we could be. And it was sort of centralized. You know, I was in Four Hills. Kai was in Berlin. And that was kind of in the center of town. So it was kind of a place, it was like a place that, that we could all come to. And it was like half an hour for everyone to get there. So Awesome. Awesome. Do you have a regret from high school? Luckily, I've been trying to think of it. There would be one. I can't think of anything, luckily. Um, I don't have too many regrets in general. Things that have gone wrong, I try to let go of. So um, I think that's an important thing because they'll, you know, holding on to grudges will eat away at your soul. And so, you know, I I find you should forgive people, not for them, but for you, because um, oftentimes you sit there hating someone, they don't know, they aren't thinking about you one bit, but you're letting them take up your life. So just let it go. So love it. Well, if you could go back in time and tell your high school something, your high school self something about the future, what would you tell the Chris Icebach of 1988, 89? Um, that you, I guess you could do any of those things. That you, you know, embrace the stuff. And, you know, my parents were always upset at me that I didn't 
pick one thing to get good at and that kind of stuff. I was all over the place. And I think that was more my superpower than, than a detriment because that's sort of the thing that I still embrace. You know, I'm always finding a new thing and I get into it and, you know, learn enough about it to know something and then move on. So it's going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. What would be the title of your high school memoir? Um, I think it would be betweener because I always felt like it's between different worlds that I was always not fully in one, you know, going back to Iowa and then coming to Mexico and, um, being, I was always in art, but also in science. And I was always someone that went in between things. So I was, uh, you know, I was on the football team, but I was also on the Science Olympiad. When I was in college, I was in rice dance theater and on the rugby team. So I did ballet and rugby at the same time. Oh, I love that. I love all the experiences that you've collected over yeah. your lifetime. Yeah. And there'll awesome. be many, many more to come. Well, thanks for doing all these things. This is, these are cool. All right. Good to see Take you. Care. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Have a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Jessica and Carla's High School Reunion is written, directed, and edited by Carla Silver and Jessica Slade. Our theme music, True Sight, is by Jared Matt Greenberg. Please subscribe and listen on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.